0: One time somebody asked me the question, what motivates people to join such a crazy group? And I thought I could tell that person at least five or six reasons. Then I told him, I better think about it and let you know tomorrow. By the next morning, I had 25 reasons why people are attracted to ISIL.
1: Muslims, Christians, and the zombie. zombie apocalypse.
0: Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse.
1: And the zombie apocalypse. <laughs>
2: Welcome back. Yeah, we got a great show today. In the intro you heard Dr. Nabil Jabour, and we've got an interview with him. This show is titled uh, 10 Reasons Why Muslims Are Eager to Join ISIS. Tell me, Trevor, why did we get Dr. Nabil
1: Jabour to talk about this?
2: This is his sweet spot. This is his expertise. He's been studying Islamic radical uh, ideology for a very long time. He's got several books out on the topic. This is what he did his Ph.D. in, and he is the sort of you know, one of the leading experts regarding sort of the process and the worldview of Arab Muslims, particularly in the developments of jihad ideology. And where is he from? Uh, born in Syria, raised in Lebanon. Uh, he is an Arab Christian, uh, but gives a wonderful sort of full picture of what it's like in the, in the Muslim world and kind
1: of all of the sort of uh, interactions going on. Yeah, this actually, this topic is one of those topics that I'm so super excited to talk about because I, I think of all things that people ask me about, like what we do with our podcast. Um, we're like, yeah, we talk about ISIS a lot because eh, ISIS is in the news a lot and people are really worried about ISIS and, you know, they're, they're crazy and, and things like that. So this is one of those uh, topics that we always want to cover.
2: So right off the beginning, we'll just start with the questions basically are surrounding, uh, you know, Dr. Jabour tell us why are Muslims eager to join ISIS? And he just kicks it right off with this idea.
0: One of them is success. When people, they see the black flag raised on expanding landmarks that's attractive. People want to be with the winners.
1: You know, something that uh, came to mind when he said that was uh, America. I've heard this said about America is that we are obsessed with winning. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, like this—that that is a real compelling reason. Like if you think that someone is winning... You kind of want to be a part of that. Like, you know, people that join uh, sports teams at the very last minute, they've never watched football in their life and all of a sudden they're watching the Colts or, you know, uh, things like that. And this is a really interesting point.
2: Yeah. And, you know, media is partly responsible for this idea, right? The idea of success. When you watch the news in almost every other sort of news media clip is about some attack or something that's happened that ISIS has orchestrated, I can't help
1: but think they're incredibly successful myself. Oh, Yeah. And and all the people that are claiming to be ISIS, we don't know if they are, right? They're just these groups. Who knows who they are, where they're from, but they claim ISIS. and
2: Right. You can have like a lone wolf terrorist attack and they say that they're doing this by ISIS. And, I, you know, I don't know that ISIS is going to like say, no, that wasn't in our name. They may just say, yeah, sure, we'll take it. Yeah, but yeah, we'll take it. Yeah. Anybody that is doing anything now with sort of terrorism automatically gets lumped together with ISIS. And it's almost as though terrorist groups have sort of... Uh, been broken down and overgeneralized. It seems kind of funny saying terrorists are being (laughs) overgeneralized. Terrorist groups are being overgeneralized into everybody's kind of fitting in with with ISIS. But that's not actually the truth,
1: but it seems that way. Uh, You know, something else that I was thinking about. uh, For our listeners that are just listening in right now, you might be thinking, uh, this still doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so this is the practice we're going to do for the rest of these uh, uh, other nine uh, reasons why people join ISIS. You have to kind of think... As if you were somebody that was interested in joining. See so right. this is actually compelling, right? Otherwise it's like, okay, so just because ISIS is successful doesn't mean I want to join. Yes, okay, I get it. You know, you probably don't want to join. But if you were somebody in one of these, you know, nation states that were, you know, angry at the West or what whatever, you know, you have to kind of think in those terms for this to even work. Okay. Right. right. And that's
2: we gotta think that way as we go through all nine and the rest of them. So
1: anyway. So next up.
0: Another one is these ISIL people have up-to-date uh, social media. Unlike Al-Qaeda, where Zawahiri is giving a speech, these people have attractive
1: videos. All right, this is not one that I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> he said, not like Al-Qaeda. So, you know, explain to me what, what what is he talking about right there. Right, so with Al-Qaeda,
2: historically you've had sort of... Uh, print ministry, you know, I'm using the word ministry loosely here. They, they would uh, write ideas like tracks and things and kind yeah. of spread them around to kind of get people, recruit people. They would use tape ministry. They would record sermons from yeah. Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, and then kind of circulate these. ISIS is a whole new ball game. These they, They've obviously got some millennials on their team that understand social media, that understand uh, how to make compelling print ads are print media. Hmm. Um, They have a
1: magazine called Dabeek. You you know, what's coming to mind is, uh, uh, you know, like if you've ever been in a truck stop, they have those cassette tapes or now CDs, right, of a pastor that's preaching. That's what kind of comes to mind. But you know what? I've never, ever been compelled to take one of those
2: things. No, but if you think about it, like the people that they're recruiting are typically
1: a very young demographic. Right, right, right. That's the people they're after. So the guy that might actually take that CD probably is a lot older, right? And so you're saying that um, ISIS is being successful because they're, they're reaching the, the, the target group. Yes, and they're
2: utilizing social media, and particularly we'll put a, a link in the show notes to this magazine that they produce. It's called Dabiq. We'll do an entire different episode on why they call it Dabiq. It's actually a reference to a geographical point in Syria And that place is meant to be the place where the end of the world sort of takes place. This is the sort of apocalyptic end of time location. And so they've named their magazine, their print magazine, which is it's full gloss, full color. Uh, Very sort of compelling. It almost looks like a sports magazine when you're reading through it. Um, We'll put a link there so that you guys can kind of see some of their print ads. And then also we mentioned the video recordings. And Howard was kind of asking, like, what is that like? So I showed him a video of one of the ones they have put out.
1: I couldn't believe it. Like, I was thinking this looks like a wholesome video. Like it's not one of those, you know, you know how like SNL puts out these little skits uh, making fun of ISIS and how like, we're going to kill everybody. It wasn't like that at all. It was, uh, it was actually a lot about family values. It was Uh, compelling, wasn't it? uh, Absolutely. And I was like completely shocked. And I was like, wow, I can see why this would be uh, something that would draw people out of the woodwork.
2: Yeah. The particular video we watched was about the relationship of father and his sons and how Jihad has brought them close together and, and it kind of promoted this idea of if your family's falling apart and everything's not working, if you join us, everything will be good again. And you can imagine how
1: compelling that would be to an immigrant family where things may be extremely stressful. Right. And you see brotherhood in it. You see uh, all generations in it. You see sacrifice. You see commitment. You see heritage, like all of the things that Americans would be like all over, you know, like that, that, that stuff makes sense to us. Right. And it's in this video. And I'm just like, oh, man, I can imagine how compelling this is for a kid, a young kid who's disenfranchised living in a country, maybe Europe or the United States, where he doesn't feel accepted. Right. And so that brings us to the next point
2: that Dr. Jaboor makes. And it's kind of the whole concept of what it would be like for a Muslim
0: immigrant living in the West. Now, a major issue is uh, some Muslims feel marginalized, especially in Europe, far more than in the States. They feel we have our parents immigrated, let's say, to England or somewhere in Europe. And we are still considered as foreigners. They say, I don't have an accent, yet I am perceived as an outsider. When will I ever belong? I'd rather go and join a group of people that accept me right away.
1: I totally resound with that. Um, Growing up, I was the only Asian kid in my school, and you better believe I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. Wait, seriously, were you like the only Asian kid? I wish that I was exaggerating, although later, maybe around 6th grade, 5th grade or something like that, this kid named Alex, a Chinese kid, came up. I still remember his name. And he refused to talk to me.
2: No, I bet you refused to talk to him because you had already kind of made your group and you're just like, just because this kid's Asian, I'm not going to be his friend.
1: That's probably how it happened. I just, I just think it was that, you know, we just wanted to like pretend like we didn't need one another or, or stuck together or whatever. But anyway, it affected me all the way up into my adulthood. I I do something called hunting and I'm Asian. I don't know if you know many Asian hunters. I don't. But whenever I go to my hunting club, okay, I don't want you guys to judge me, but I'm judging. I'm, you. Just, I'm just saying, to be it right real now. honest here, real straight, this is this is a safe place. Uh I put on a southern accent. <laughs> You're
2: serious. You <laughs> actually get a little bit of a you you talk with a little bit of an accent when you go hunting.
1: Uh, I, I do. Did you just hear that? Uh, now that I'm all even the Southerners out there, are like that ain't Southern, bro. <laughs> do you what? No, I mean I really do, and and, and it's, it's I think it's totally a kickback to that wanting to be accepted, not feeling totally like alone. Yeah, I get it,
2: man. The the whole idea of marginalized. If you're a Muslim immigrant and you're watching the media and everything that you're seeing is about how Muslims are this or Muslims are that, and you're getting categorized as you fit into this whole group of people, you start to feel a little bit like. I don't belong.
1: Yeah. And you go out in the street and all of your neighbors are white or black and they're not like you. Or Hispanic, Howard. There are other categories. I'm just (laughs)
2: going to throw that out
1: there. He sometimes forgets. Or Hispanic. Or Hispanic. All the multiracial peoples in America. But anyway, the point is, uh, you know, I I get what Nabil's saying. Yeah.
2: Howard, actually, I think you're going to be able to resonate with the next points as well. The next clip is actually two points that Nabil makes. And Howard, growing up with an immigrant background, I think is going to be able to resonate here also.
0: Another reason could be experiencing no meaning for life and they want to give something that counts. Another one is failure to economically aspire to achieve the American dream or the European dream. How many Muslims, unless they are highly qualified, in Europe especially, or in England in particular, can achieve the European dream of owning a house, for instance?
2: All right, so Howard, you're going to have to break the stereotype for me because uh, I think a lot of people that aren't Asian, like they see... Second generation immigrants, and they see their parents kind of pressuring them, they can, they need to become doctors or lawyers. Sort of that's the push, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so they need to be successful. Was this something that was, you know, pushed on you? Like, in order for you to have meaning in life, you need to become a huge success above oh, and beyond your parents?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think. You know, I think that I understand now why our parents think that way, Uh, because when you're talking about an immigrant parent, an immigrant mind coming into the United States, you want your child to succeed, not just uh, not just even economically, because most Koreans, I mean, if you were to look at them across the board, they're pretty successful financially. But it's it's uh, more of like meaning uh, status in life, uh, contributing, uh, being a part of the society. Uh, I think that was a lot of pressure. That's why it was doctors and lawyers because they perceived that as a, a very respectful thing. and so I, I totally get that. I get that with uh, with with Muslim you know uh, kids growing up in the United States or in Europe um, desiring to have that and having no no avenue for that no no uh, avenue to have success or uh, meaningful positions or jobs or being even being respected. So the tough thing is,
2: you know they want to have the american dream but there's also a pretty critical view of sort of western ideology as well
0: others uh, look uh, especially people muslims living in europe and the united states they see the western societies are getting more and more immoral homosexuality people living together without getting married Okay, so you
2: could see how this would be a huge problem, right? Because you're supposed to be successful. You're supposed to pursue this European or American dream. You're not succeeding in doing it. And even if you do succeed in doing it, in some ways, because of the internet and you're kind of have a foot in both worlds... Maybe people back home see you as sort of a compromiser because now you're part of the West. This immoral society is its is its label.
1: Yeah, I can totally see how this is a big problem for Muslims because, on one sense, you want them to be they want to be successful, they want to achieve the American dream, but that puts them in bed with the the West. Yeah, the American dream. If you know, if America is viewed
2: as an immoral society, if Europe, you know, the entire Western world is viewed as immoral and you're trying to be successful in that, even if you do succeed, people back home see you as a compromiser.
1: Right, because you're a big player in the whole system that they hate. Right, and so
2: when you have that sort of... uh you know, you're stuck between a rock and a This is a lose, lose situation, especially with the internet, because now you're linking together these two worlds. People back home can see what you're doing here. Uh, You can see what's going on back home. And it's not just an issue for people trying to please two different societies. The internet is being used in so many different ways to radicalize Muslims.
1: Alright, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And
2: at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you You want to partner with us, you like what we're doing, you want to be on our team, what have you, bring this show to the world, then email us and let us know.
0: And since we are in the age of the internet, Bridge Builders like Anwar al awlaki has influenced many people over the internet. This guy is the son of a couple who came to the States from Yemen because the father wanted to study for a PhD in America. And so Anwar al awlaki was born in New Mexico. Uh, he went to uh, Colorado State University but he in, while in college, he started a little group of Muslim fundamentalists. Then he went to San Diego for his master's in engineering in California, and there he did the same. Then he came to DC to study for a PhD, but didn't stay long. He uh, uh, ran before he gets arrested to Yemen and started an internet ministry he was one of the leaders of the muslim fundamentalists in america he was considered a terrorist
2: yeah so who is this guy awlaki right he's an american citizen as Nabil mentioned and he was eventually killed uh by a drone strike hmm. and hugely controversial because he's an american citizen he was killed without trial this even went before congress and was very controversial but What Nabil's point is, is that he was using the Internet to radicalize people. So even after he left the United States, he was still a really powerful and
1: influential Internet preacher. And wasn't he involved in somehow with the Fort Hood shooting?
2: Yes. Nadal Hassan uh, would attribute his radical ideology to the teachings of Anwar al-Awlaki. And so that's why he became sort of an enemy of the state, even though he was American born and an American citizen. It was through the Internet, through Uh, his radical preaching that he was still making a huge impact and considered to be a very influential terrorist against the United States.
1: So when you're talking about preaching, so these guys were just like listening to his sermons kind of thing, sermon, uh, I say that loosely, or was it like a a video or, or like, you know, like the social media thing that we were talking about earlier? Uh, al had both. He had you know, YouTube
2: sermons that he had done, he had had interviews, and you kind of, if you trace Al-Awlaki, and this is probably a little bit off-base here, but just for those of you that are interested, you can sort of even trace the progression of his radicalization. You can hear some of his early sermons that are a little bit more sort of docile, more balanced, and then you start to see a progression of radicalization, and then he becomes more and more sort of angry and more and more preaching a radical sort of message of hate.
1: And so, eventually, he is is killed as a terrorist uh how much of the internet influence uh you know for radicalizing muslims would would you attest to or give to al not
2: just al but i would say that the internet is the uh that's the big issue that is have. it's difficult to maintain what's going on in radicalization because of the internet imagine the reformation without the printing press Okay, it wouldn't be, so the printing press changed the game, right, so radicalization with the internet it's it's almost uh, changed the game in such a way that it's hard to contain, and so that's why there is even some push to control the internet, and of course, you have the constitution that says uh, freedom of speech, and then you have this sort of uh, you know, people meeting at a, at a bulwark where they're not going to negotiate on these issues because some people want freedom of speech, other people want control of the internet so that you can't radicalize people. And there's been a lot of studies that have been done on the internet and the use of radicalization, and it is
1: the number one tool the internet. Wow. And so, I mean, you have this quandary in the US, right? Because I get it. Like when you showed me that video, it was on YouTube. I was not expecting YouTube to be a part of this whole, you know, mix.
2: No, and there's a huge push to make YouTube remove videos, to not allow ISIS to have Twitter feed, to uh, not allow ISIS to post things through Facebook. And yeah, these are all American companies. That's right. And so they're obviously uh, in a, between a rock and a hard place too, because their constituency is saying that we want freedom of speech, and you right. can't, you can't sort of. Uh, monitor these things right because what yeah because right? he
1: says you know what's free and what's not free but but the terrorist watch list i mean i think that's a good indicator <laughs> of whether
2: something should be pulled off and a lot of that stuff gets uh looked at through the patriot act and they're able to find loopholes into how you know freedom of speech doesn't apply to certain scenarios and so there is uh, some uh government sort of oversight on some of these things that you know you and i aren't even aware of and i don't know that we could be aware of them but you know it's there the bottom line is the internet is being used to promote sort of war propaganda, and it happens through print media. It happens uh, through film like YouTube. And it's not just about showing like what ISIS is about. It's also uh, sort of exposing the ideas that they're fighting against. And so it, you don't have to do much of a YouTube search uh, to see that Israel uh, it kind of stands at the center of a lot of the tension. And there are some pretty hateful videos that are created uh, as propaganda against Israel. And Israel in turn promotes some of their videos against Palestine and sort of this Israeli-Palestinian uh, you know, war of ideas happens on the Internet as well. And Israel is a big idea when it comes to what's going on in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, I, I know that this is a loaded question, so forgive me. But if you could just give me, in one sentence, one sentence... What is up with Israel in the Muslim world? Why do they hate Israel? For those of us that are, that are listening that have no idea why.
2: Okay, I would be an idiot to give one sentence on Israel in the Middle East. Like, what about what, what, what no a
1: sentence leading us to like, hey, we're gonna have another show about all right, this. We specifically. will do
2: a podcast and we will bring in people from all sides of the equation so that we can talk about this in a in an open way. But all I can tell you, uh, kind of to lead into it is that Israel is not sort of a side issue when it comes to ISIS. Israel is not a side issue when it comes to uh, the rise of Islamic radicalization. It's, it's a pretty core issue that has to be talked about, but we can't do it in one sentence
1: or in this podcast. Okay, fine. So, but we will cover it. That's all I need to know.
0: We will cover it.
2: We're going to cover it right now by letting Nabil Jabour kind of give you the idea of how this is an issue and let that be the lead way.
0: One major uh, reason, Israel is the only superpower in the Middle East, and they see it supported by America, and America doesn't uh, hold the leash tight uh, uh, as it should be, as it should do, as they perceive it.
1: All right, so uh, Nabil says leash, by the way, for those that didn't hear that audio, that the U.S. is not holding the leash tight. but this is what kind of blowing my mind a little bit and this is what I kind of wanted you to answer before but the idea that people would join ISIS because of Israel uh, being a superpower in the Middle East that is just that blows me away well Nabil gives a little bit more of a
2: clarification as to how that comes about and it's really comes down to nuclear weapons I mean just imagine Howard that you live in a country where the country next to you can eradicate you but you don't have the same power to do back and I think that's the Muslim
1: argument. Yeah, you would feel pretty powerless. Right. Frustrated, so, fearful. Uh, they, You feel like they could bully you. Right, you feel exactly. feel like a victim constantly. Yeah, I get it.
2: Yeah, so Nabil touches on that and the whole idea of nuclear sort of arms and how that plays into the superpower idea.
0: It was called the nuclear option at one time. And... Uh, Uh, The government of the United States knew about it. Actually, during the time of John Kennedy, a group of Americans went to inspect if there is a nuclear program in Israel. They built a wall in in front of the entrance to that place where they have the nuclear power. The American uh, investigators reached there and they didn't find that particular entrance and came back and reported there is nothing. But over the years, they have had a nuclear program. And if they want to, for instance, they can demolish Iran in 15 minutes. And they don't want another country in the Middle East to have nuclear power so that they will continue to be the only superpower in the Middle East.
1: And so are they wanting to say, hey, Israel needs to have the same sort of level of military as everybody else? I I told you we can't do a whole episode on Israel. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) But
2: we do, at this point, need to discuss some of the theological issues going on. Um, you know, one thing I really appreciate about Nabil is he doesn't want to make any of this so simple as, oh, if everybody just wasn't poor, then it wouldn't be an issue, or if um, there were more jobs, then it wouldn't be an issue. He's saying that it is sort of the convergence of all of these things together, and theology is a part of that, Right. Um, he's not saying that Islam isn't a part of it. Islam is a part of it, and that's uh, something that needs to be talked about. So the
0: whole idea of uh, sort of the, the caliphate, that's part of it too. They want to have a caliph. There is this longing. Imagine if Catholics one day after the death of the Pope cannot agree on who will be the future Pope. How will Catholics around the world feel? That's how many Muslims feel today. Although the head of Al-Azhar Seminary, which is the largest Muslim seminary in the world, he said the caliphate is finished, and daydreaming about that is useless.
1: That sounds pretty hopeless. Um, I guess the question that comes to my mind is, let's just say there was a caliphate. Does that mean that Islam comes under unity?
2: Well, that's just it. They are saying there's a caliphate abu abu Bakr Baghdadi is saying he is the caliph yeah but he's the guy that's in charge of isis right but he's saying it's not just isis like the uh iraq and syria now he's saying it's the islamic state the whole world right fall under the banner of islam
1: but nobody agrees
2: no one agrees some agree Uh, i shouldn't say no one some agree and some are following no doubt but there have been caliphs in the past there have been caliphs in the past and did that create unity with all the muslim world Well, it depends on which period of time in history you're talking about. So, for instance, most of the Islamic State is going to reference the unique four caliphs of the unique Quranic generation, talking about the first four caliphs of Islam. But even within those four caliphs of Islam, there's no unity. I mean, two of them are murdered by the Muslim community. And so there's never a point in time where there's sort of this unified uh islamic state that all works under this one idea they're always trying to figure out how do we what what i would say that history shows is an islamic empire rises and then it usually falls at the hands of another islamic empire
1: so so what's the big payoff for a caliph a caliph what is it that they really want in the caliph to see happen
2: well it's kind of like uh you you have your apocalyptic sort of uh preachers that are looking for an end-time sort of battle, and they really do believe, and that's what I think is dangerous about guys like ISIS, is because they are driven by sort of an apocalyptic ideology, The some of the leadership. Not to say that everyone in ISIS is driven by this. They're not. Some of them are driven by a paycheck. Some of them are driven by uh, they want to be a part of something. Some of them are driven by Islamic eschatology, an apocalyptic sort of war that's supposed to happen there near uh, Damascus, near Aleppo in Syria. Wait, wait, that's wait. That's
1: what's driving it. To drive them to this Judgment Day battle. This is what they want.
2: Yeah, we got to do a whole nother podcast on Islamic eschatology and Judgment Day. That's and That's the end times two battle. podcasts
1: you promised me in this podcast. I want to keep them to 30 minutes, so for the listener's <laughs> okay. sake, right okay. now,
2: we're just going to say that there is a desire among many Muslims to have a caliph, but there is no agreement across the board as to how that's supposed to come about. In fact, there is no agreement as to whether or not it should even come about, as Nabil pointed out. And, you know, I don't want to give the impression that everybody that is joining the Islamic state is necessarily desiring the caliph. Sometimes you know, you don't have much choice. And Nabil kind of points that out
0: here. Most Muslims around the world believe that America has overextended itself in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they know that Americans do not want to engage in another war fighting ISIL by getting boots on the ground. So they say America doesn't have a staying power while ISIL has a staying power. These people are going to stay. So if... A tribe in Iraq is promised by an American general, will defend you. What this, the tribe leaders would say, how long will they stay with us?
1: Yeah, this totally makes sense to me also, because the idea that, you know, you have an invading country coming in, offering you protection, you have to think in long term. Right. That the idea that they're not going to be there forever, then they're not going to be paying you that paycheck if you're working for them. They're not going to protect you from all the warlords that you've been you know, snubbing your nose at during this entire period. I mean, how long do you really have? Yeah. And we do have a spotty history
2: as Americans as to whether or not we will uh, stay in a country and help rebuild, especially in the Muslim world. There's a lot of skepticism as to what we're doing there, why we're there, how long we'll be there. And they realize that um, these guys that you're saying I should fight against, you may decide one day to leave and they're still going to be here.
1: Nobody knows how long America's going to stay. But regardless, America's footprint and bringing the wars is going to have a lasting impression
2: the The way to see this Howard like the most clearly is that it 's created a vacuum where the sectarian violence it 's not that it 's not that the war in Iraq created the sectarian violence. the sectarian violence between Sunni and Shiite it existed before the war but Saddam hussein he ruled with an iron fist, he ruled over the people through fear, and it kept that sectarian violence at a minimum and When Saddam Hussein was overthrown and eventually hanged. Um, the new government that was put into place through a democratic election was a Shiite government. And so now what you have is a Shiite government is ruling whereas you have all of this history where a Sunni government was ruling the Shiites were suffering at the hands of the Sunnis now the Shiites are ruling the Sunnis are suffering at the hands of the Sunnis and this becomes a huge player you have this sort of rift that has existed within Islamic history you have recent history of oppression of the Sunnis by the or oppression of the Shiites by the Sunnis and now you have what is being Uh, told as an American government put in a Shiite government. Not necessarily true, right? I mean, it was supposed to be a democratic election, but that's how it's told. And this creates a cauldron to recruit a lot of people to want to join because they get to fight an Islamic, eschatological, apocalyptic battle.
1: So you're saying that the Shiites, right, are the rallying cry, the destruction of the Shiites by the Sunnis. So you're saying that ISIS is Sunni, And one of their big rallying cries is to wreak havoc on this people group. That's crazy. Yeah. It's not the first time in history that's happened. It's not an Islamic problem. It's a human problem. Hmm. I can see why people don't really address this to the degree that they could. Because it, w- it would be a course. This would be a course on ISIS. This wouldn't be one
2: course, Howard. This would be, you'd have to have a course on Middle Eastern politics, Middle Ugh. Eastern history. You'd have to have a course on the interaction of Israel and the establishment of Israel in 1948 and the Western powers and in- being a part of that eschatology you have to have islamic eschatology islamic theology islamic history you have to have an understanding so there's a whole lot there which is why
1: this podcast will last for years to come right which we are not going to address all of those issues but we will address them right trevor you've promised absolutely absolutely this is stuff that we
2: need to know because like i said it, it, it comes down to people want to oversimplify these things and when you do that, you end up becoming uh, just sort of ignorant, and you just you, you walk in fear, thinking the world is falling apart. But when you start to understand these things, you realize that, in, in some ways, this isn't anything new, but this is the first time in history where you can kind of watch history unfold on your iPhone. And that, I think it scares people.
1: Yeah, and I think I have this feeling, right, that this podcast, this episode specifically, is going to be too short... <laughs> Or it's going to be too long for some people. But what I do want us to to think about as listeners is that, you know, keep coming back and just getting little snippets, like little bits, these short podcasts about what's going on so that you can see and also understand and apply, you know, the things that we're that we're learning here to your everyday, your everyday life.
2: I think, Howard, in conclusion, what Nabil helps us to realize is that why Muslims are eager to join ISIS Well, he's got at least 25 reasons. He's given us a handful today there isn't like sort of a one idea that's driving it. There's a lot of things driving it. And sometimes it's the convergence of all of these things. So I think Nabil has helped us to realize that there's not this sort of main thing driving it. It's a lot of things.
1: Right. And uh, there was a book that you wanted to recommend that he written.
2: Yeah. You guys can uh, read some of the things that, that Nabil has written on his website, nabeeljabor.com. And he's also written a book, which we'll put in the show notes that you can get. It's called The Crescent Through the Eyes of the Cross. That's it
1: for our show today.
2: Yeah. Be sure that you guys uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes if you like it. You can check us out on Facebook. We haven't actually put up a website yet, but if we you write will. us on Facebook, we will write you back.
1: Right. And on SoundCloud, when you guys look it up, it will have the show notes in there and uh, websites and things that you can look up uh, that we refer to in the show. And as always, uh, just a reminder, we are trying to hit 100 reviews. Right, Trevor? That's right. 100 reviews. We were at 43, I think. And we had this idea
2: whoever writes the 50th review is going to get a gift from us but we decided not to do that because people are going to wait no no we're going to do it because you have no idea there could be six people writing a review right now and At you the don't same get to time. yeah you don't get to see when your <laughs> review pops up you don't like when you write your review uh iTunes waits a day to post it. Hmm, okay. So, I say review number 50, we're going to send you a gift. We're making some cool swag like yep. coffee cups and t-shirts you and you're going to get something. You just said swag. And then Excuse. reviewer number 60 and that's how we're going to do it. Ooh. Yeah. Well done. All yeah.
1: right, so all the way up to 100. So, please write reviews. Uh thank you so much for listening. Yeah.